Father, we come in Jesus' name and we give thanks to you that we could assemble together to worship you, to sing praises to you, to acknowledge you as the only God, not one made out of wood or any other items that men create, but God who has revealed himself so clearly and testified to us so uh, expansively from your holy word and through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the living and abiding word of God that we receive through the Lord Jesus, the living word. And so we ask that as we look into your word this morning, that you, by the power of your spirit, would open our minds, our hearts, our souls to receive nourishment, the nourishment of your word, and that we might grow in faith and in obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been living in some unusual, even confusing times, and we receive so much information during these times that sometimes we need ask ourselves, well, who are we to actually believe? There is an array of conflicting reports from various, uh, what we would say, respected authorities. And because they are conflicting reports, they often can leave us baffled. And we wonder, what are we to believe and, and how are we to live? It happens in the political arena. It happens in the financial sector. It's happening in medicine and even spiritually. This was true even back then when John wrote this letter. And it is true today. And my question to you this morning is, so how are we to overcome? Well, I think that indeed John gives us the key answer in these verses that we've read this morning. He says in verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And earlier in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 15, he wrote, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In both of these verses, there is the claim of the incarnation of the Son of God, becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. And this inspired truth must be believed if any sinner is to receive God's gracious gift of salvation. No one in this world, can be an overcomer if they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To think otherwise will result in the judgment of God. You, re 
may remember as you've read through the Gospels that Jesus often made certain that his chosen disciples knew that he was the Christ, the Son of God. As when he asked them at one point in time, who do people say the Son of Man is? There in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. And some said one thing, and some another. But it was Peter's answer that sort of settled the matter. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Or when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead there in John chapter 11, verses 23 through 27, he tells Martha this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked this question to Martha. Do you believe this? And Martha responds and says, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This, what we could say foundational biblical truth, is a non-negotiable doctrine that all Christians must believe and defend. For Jesus is the Son of God. And those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God graces to be the ones who are the overcomers of this world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Only belief that Jesus is the Son of God actually ensures, ensures us that of God's grace and of His power that has transformed us so that we are His children to overcome the world. And in verse 6 and following, John proceeds to explain what this belief in this person Jesus truly is. He says there in verse 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. In other words, John points back to an, an historical space-time events of Jesus' life. He came by water, and he came by blood. John's expression that he is the one who came in this way infers that he is one who has come into the world. Another reference 
to Jesus' incarnation as the Son of God. And for what purpose? To accomplish God's mission of providing eternal salvation for sinners that he came to save in this world. Some scholars think that the phrase by water and blood refer to the baptism of Jesus and his subsequent crucifixion when he shed his blood. Still others believe John meant the actual sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And yet, neither of these dual topics are directly recounted in the Gospel of John. So is there another possible meaning to this phrase of the water and the blood? R.C. Sproul thinks that this phrase offers historical proof of Jesus Christ's physical, sacrificial death on the cross. Where does he get this from? He gets it from John's Gospel. When the soldiers, after, while Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit, a soldier comes up and he pierces his side in John 19, verse 34. And when he pierces the side of Jesus' body, it, we hear and we read about the blood flowing and the water flowing out of his side. Another passage that points to this fact is found in John 20, verses 20 and then 25 through 28. When John, when Jesus appears to his disciples and John actually writes about the, his scarred wound, that Jesus points to them and says, look at my wounds in his bodily resurrected body as he appears to his disciples and as he actually tells Thomas to stick his hand there. In this case, this phrase is actually being set against the the docetists there that were actually denying the physical life, death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as God. And since they were also denying the incarnation of the Son of God, as we read about earlier in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. To deny Jesus Christ's humanity is to deny what is essential for the Son of God becoming man, to sacrificially die in our place on the cross, to make full atonement for our sins, and then bodily rise triumphant again from the grave on the third day, as it is written in the Scriptures, to be our Savior. It's not only important that we understand the historical facts that Jesus came by water and the blood. It is important that even as R.C. Sproul pointed out, that it is factual by the ways in which 
the account shows that Jesus was dead on that cross and the water and the blood came out of his side. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that both of these truths that we have outlined here this morning are essential to explaining the true gospel. Because he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, John goes on and he fortifies, if you will, will, this dual evidence of the blood and the water as he, that attests actually to Jesus' humanity as the Christ because the water actually points to the commencing of his earthly ministry and the blood to the culmination of his redemptive mission with a third evidence, a third testimony, the, the one that is an, an ensuring witness, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. He says here, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit testifying the truth about Jesus Christ is the, if you will, the abiding work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus says there in John 15, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you in my Father's name, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me or about me. And that's why he says here in verses 7 and 8, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Yes, they are. Now this testimony has roots back in the Old Testament law because it was required in the Old Testament law that, that it was by the testimony of two or three united witnesses that this truth would be established in a matter. And some believe that this verse indeed, refers to the three things which actually issued from the crucified Lord, Jesus Christ, as he hung and as he died on the cross to purchase our redemption. Because in John 19, you'll remember, in verse 30, Jesus Christ willfully gave up his spirit we read, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The other two come out later, as was noted earlier, that when he did that, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately the blood and water came out. This threefold combined 
testimony emphasizes, if you will, Jesus' humanity as he died on the cross. And therefore, we must consider all three of these witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood together, because they testify, indeed, that Jesus is the Son of God. This combination proves that indeed Jesus was God's Son. He came to this earth, the Spirit testifying even at his baptism as he descended upon him like a dove. And the Father actually, with a voice, came out and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And even Jesus Christ, by his own prophetic witness, told us in the Gospels of his sacrificial death and that he would rise on the third day as the Son of Man. That he would offer himself, shedding his life's blood on a cross to purchase our salvation. And for those only who believe in him. Well, verses 9 and 10, John goes on and he says that indeed, if you think the testimonies of men are great, you need to understand the testimony of God is greater. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe has made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has concerning his son. There is in the mind of John as he's writing this irrefutable, external, historical evidence of the testimony of God in the scriptures. And it demands a verdict from each one of us. Are we going to believe the testimony of men which denies conflicts and contradicts the greater testimony of God? The testimony that he has testified concerning his son? That's why John, we read John chapter 5. Because Jesus said, the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they testify about me that the Father has sent me. And if the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one 
and only God. In other words, John is stating, the one who believes in the Son of God has indeed even the testimony in himself. And the one who does not believe causes God to be made a liar. What John is getting at here is not only is there the threefold testimony of God coming to us from the Scriptures, but as we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, there is that eternal, internal, excuse me, witness within ourselves. As the Apostle Paul wrote there in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, he said, For you have not received a spirit leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But to the person who does not believe God's testimony concerning his son, that person has made God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Which brings us to verses 11 and 12. And the testimony, he says, is this that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The person who believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life, but the one who does not believe does not have eternal life. He remains, or she remains, under the judgment of God. Just as John in his gospel wrote in John 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So why was John so intent on explaining these details to us through the scriptures as the Holy Spirit inspired him? It was because he wanted us to receive God's grace, to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and receive from him salvation and newness of life by the Spirit so that we might be a people who obey God's will and bring glory to God. As the writer of the Hebrews says, there in Hebrews 6, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. The things that accompany salvation. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have sh shown towards his name. 
in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not grow sluggish but become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May we not grow weary. We as believers know the truth. We know where the lie comes from. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. Let us live convinced of these truths that are ours. Truths that indeed cause us as the people of God to move forward in faith, to do those things that accompany salvation. Recognizing that God, our Father, does not forget our work and the love that we show toward him and toward his people. Amen.